Today we're here with Steve Nash, renowned author and University of Richmond professor. Steve, welcome to the program. Why did you write Virginia Climate Fever? I've been following the science about climate change as we all have for quite a long time now, maybe 15 years in a focused way. But what I've been waiting for has only occurred relatively recently. I've been waiting for the science to be able to focus on regions like Virginia, rather than looking at the whole hemisphere or the whole globe. What is the state of climate change in Virginia? Thankfully, the science has improved and also the computers have gotten bigger and faster during the course of those 10 or 15 years. Maybe six years ago, we began to see reports in the published climate literature that are able to tell us the story of Virginia in terms of projecting what lies ahead. If we're saying what's the state of climate change in Virginia now and look over our shoulders at what has already happened, the historical data tells us emphatically that Virginia is heating up just as fast as most of the rest of the planet. It has gotten warmer over the last 30 years in a very consistent way. The summers are warmer and the winters are warmer and the shoulder seasons, the spring and the fall, are a little more erratic, but that's what's been happening in the past. Two days ago on January 1st, it was 60 degrees. And I remember last Christmas, 2015, it was 75. And that was all across the East Coast. People were sunning themselves in Central Park. What you're saying is climate change is happening now. I'm saying climate change is happening in a demonstrable way over at least the last three decades. And that comes from the Virginia State Office of Climatology, not from some exotic instrument someplace. That's just the kind of data you're talking about, which has been tracked very carefully over a long period of time. What I can't say, and this is exasperating for many of us, is that the 60 degree day you spoke of, or the 75 degree New Year's day, is because of climate change. Scientists can't spot one day, one season, or one year. But if they're looking at three decades of data, they feel much more confident in saying, yeah, climate change is happening right now. You take a really interesting tack in your book by not addressing some of the critics who I think are easy to scapegoat. Rush Limbaugh, Sarah Palin, people like that. I want you to talk about people who are conservatives or conservative-leaning, but also consider themselves rationalists. There seems to be no appetite amongst the Republican Party and people who lean in that partisan direction to address climate change. Now, why is that? I wish I had a confident answer <laughs> to give you about that. I think anything I would have to say is just a series of tired questions with a lot more hesitations and question marks at the end. The book that I wanted to write and that I hope I've written is about the science of climate change. There is material here about the politics, but what I really wanted to do, in a way that's respectful of Republicans and everyone else, is to talk about what scientists, whom we rely on for scientific information about tens of thousands of other things in our lives, what they're telling us about what's going to happen with climate change in our backyard. If people won't accept what scientists have to say, if they insist on regarding that as some kind of conspiracy involving tens of thousands of people worldwide who have spent their whole career doing nothing but fraud, if they insist on believing that, I didn't delude myself that I could change their minds. But I think that there are a lot of Republicans who are willing to listen to science, who can divorce science from politics enough so that it's no longer a religious issue 
And I think they will be increasingly uneasy, and some of them already are, about what's happening to all of us. And they'll return to the science in a serious way as the basis for making good policy. One of the many interesting parts of your book was talking about what's going to happen to Hampton Roads. There are Democratic areas and Republican areas, but there are also serious military installations, which historically, of course, Republicans support. What does the Pentagon say about climate change? The Pentagon issued a report five or six years ago, which takes a look at climate change, accepts the science, of course, of climate change. Pentagon is responsible for making serious reality-based plans, not political plans. And they declared climate change to be among the top national security issues for our country and for the world on the way to advocating that we begin immediately making plans on that basis for our national security. More locally, our naval installations here along the Virginia coast are going to be, and already are to some degree, experiencing serious flooding as a result of sea level rise. And the Navy has been planning, because it has so many coastal facilities all over the country and has such a huge investment in that part of our national security, they've been making plans for a long time. It's going to cost hundreds of millions to fortify or to move things around and in general to adapt to sea level rise. And that's happening in in Virginia already. So they're taking it seriously, as are the Republican legislators in our state legislature from that area. They know better than to think this can be ignored. So does it take a brush with reality for Republican politicians, or frankly any politicians in Virginia, to begin to accept climate change and to do something about it? In other words, do their constituents have to actually be flooded? And if that's the case, then we only have to worry about the coast, right? What about the inland? What about Richmond, Roanoke, everywhere else? I can't comfortably speculate on the psychology of this in the future. I don't know if people are going to have to be wet up to their ankles several times a year to figure this out in a way that doesn't get mixed up with their political values on lots of other questions. I think that there is going to be a higher and higher psychic cost, though, of ignoring the evidence around the world and in Virginia as things get warmer, as things get wetter as things get more unstable, I think that it'll cost more to try to keep ignoring that and to pretend it doesn't exist than it does to face it squarely and try to do something about it. It'll cost more politically and it'll cost more psychologically. I hear these Republican politicians all the time talking about the national debt and the future of our children. What's going to happen in the long term by 2100? We're going to be, one hopes, having serious conversations about how to adapt In the case of sea level rise, whether to try to build walls, whether to try to move things inland, whether to elevate some of our real estate, if that's even possible, what to protect and what to abandon, that's a decision that will instruct the rest of us who don't live on the coast, although most Virginians do. But those of us who live inland will begin to see our forests more and more stressed out by heat and perhaps drought. The scientists don't know whether it's going to be drought or flood or what the precipitation is going to be. As we watch those things happening, we'll be having serious conversations about how to protect and restore those forests. 65% of Virginia is forested now, so there's a lot at stake inland as well as on the coast. You talk about a series of experiments done at Duke University over the last 20 or 30 years that pumped a bunch of carbon dioxide into a forest. It was a happy thought, which is still sometimes heard. 
that because plant life does depend on carbon dioxide, the happy thought was, yeah, well, if there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, all of Earth's green cover will be enhanced, will be happier, will grow faster and be healthier. These experiments were designed in part to see what happens when you add more CO2 into the atmosphere. Jim Clark at Duke did this for decades. And the result is an unhappy one. Fogging plants with CO2 at various levels over long periods of time and in different kinds of conditions and different species of trees doesn't seem to do them much good at all. They are adapted to certain levels of CO2 and certain other factors, and somehow they can't make use of this surplus of CO2. What they're going to be responding to instead is a lot more heat that a lot of tree species are not well adapted to. Steve, we're not the only animals on this planet. What you're talking about in terms of climate change is going to make them extinct. It's unusual for our state government, which has turned its back on climate change, especially during Republican administrations, ever since it became an issue for public discussion. It's unusual for our government agencies to investigate what the impacts of climate change will be. It's been politically difficult. And yet, it has happened. And it's a credit to those people in our state government that have managed to gather data and publish it for us all to rely on. They've been able to do that in spite of the headwinds that they've been fighting. So there was a report by the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries, not a hotbed of environmentalist sentiment, but nonetheless, it pointed out that climate change or not, we already have this very long list of stressed species, endangered threatened or their populations are diminishing. That's a lot of plants and animals that are already in trouble. And an additional enormous stress like climate change is, you're quite right, going to push them over the brink. We will be saying goodbye to a lot of, perhaps extinction isn't quite the word, if they're able to migrate someplace else or if they can hang on someplace else. We'll be looking at what's called extirpation, which means they won't be in Virginia anymore, but there will be a lot of extinctions too. Virginia Constitution is maybe unique in the world in protecting oysters. Tell me that again. Oysters are in the Constitution of the state of Virginia. I completely uh, overlooked this wonderful factoid. The Earth's oceans and our large estuaries like the Chesapeake Bay have become much more acidified as seawater mixes with the additional atmospheric CO2. Carbonic acid is formed and carbonic acid makes it more and more difficult for shellfish like oysters to make their shells. It's called death by dissolution. In other words, they dissolve. So the world's oceans are one-third more acidic than they were before the Industrial Revolution began adding CO2 into the atmosphere. And that acidification process is accelerating. That means Virginia's oysters are going to have to all be raised in some artificial environment, or we'll have to find some other ways of coping with that. All I hear right now is that they're increasingly popular, and it's increasingly possible to have a sustainable business raising oysters, which is great news. Do you have hope? I do. I have a lot of hope, as much as I can muster, not because of solid evidence, but because I don't think we have any alternative but to keep hoping. My favorite ecologist says, however, that hope is not some kind of passive orientation where we think good thoughts or we try to adopt a positive attitude. David Orr, that ecologist, says that hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. 
that's the kind of hope that I hope catches on among all of us, that we're going to engage with this and with the rest of the political context that's preventing us from doing something about climate change and really strongly move forward. Humans and Americans and Virginians have responded to challenges before, maybe not one quite this global, but we've had success as a species being smart and being able to prepare for trouble. The last line of your book says, as the ecologist David Orr has said, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. Why did you make that the last line of your book? You wouldn't bother writing a book if it there wasn't any hope. Well, you might. You might as just a, a sort of a witnessing, a testament. I hope if people read this book or the many other fine books available about climate change or about Virginia politics for that matter, they'll do something about it. That's why I chose it as the last line of the book. The idea of rolling up your sleeves and actually trying to cope with the problems, that's why you bother writing a book. I'd like you to read something else from the book. You talk about what the world was like three million years ago. It was three to five degrees warmer. Okay, we're in the Pliocene era. During one part of the Pliocene, the Atlantic shoreline was only a little east of and roughly parallel to the present-day route of Interstate 95. Its geographic signature, a ragged north-south line where buried oceanic sands and gravels give way to higher elevation granite, is called the Chippenham Thornburg Scarp. Geologists find traces of that old shore near the fall line. The rocky falls and rapids you've seen on the Potomac River at Alexandria, the Rappahannock at Fredericksburg, the North Anna at Hanover, the James River at Richmond, and the Appomattox at Petersburg. Back then, you'd be standing in Richmond or Alexandria and looking out at the ocean. The Pliocene is the last time in the history of the planet when we had the levels of CO2 that we have now. Three to five degree rise in global temperatures, that's well within the range of forecasts. It is for the next century. Those are part of a range of projections, and if we can return to the subject of hope, our hope is that they're wrong. Not wrong in the sense that we're all going to be fine and there's not going to be any climate change, but wrong in the sense that they are at the hotter end of a spectrum of projections, all of which are catastrophic, but some catastrophes worse than others. So our hope is that it won't get that hot. It's also the case that for sea levels to come up to Route 95, it will take a lot more melting of polar ice. That is advancing rapidly. Even at this pace, it'll be a long time before we see volumes of seawater that will cover that much of Virginia. Just like an ice cube outside on the sidewalk, it takes a while to melt. How long would it take for you to be able to look at the ocean from the headquarters of Dominion in Richmond? You know, those headquarters are pretty tall, so <laughs> I hope they can see that far today since they're adding so much to the problem. I hope they don't need binoculars to see the future they're creating for all of us. But I can't really answer that question securely because, you know, I'm just a journalist. Everybody in America can stand on their desk and claim to be a journalist and beat their chest any day of the week. What I've written isn't my musings and my information on these subjects. I've just tried to channel the scientists who do the work. Science is good. It's self-correcting. It is honest. And honestly, they don't know how long it will take for maybe ice caps to melt to that degree. They don't know yet. They're working on it. They're modeling things. There's a range of estimates, but they aren't confident estimates, and so I didn't really include them. Is there somebody to blame for climate change, or is everybody at fault so nobody's at fault? We know the industrial processes that we could blame. 
In terms of people to blame, I think we have to look at the structure of our political system as our politics are practiced today. And rather than find blame, rather than spot our villains with too much vehemence, I hope we can spend that energy fixing the problem. Yeah, there are people we can blame and institutions we can blame in terms of them standing in the way of getting things fixed. But climate change, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, all of this started quite some time ago. It's been accelerating. The longer we wait, the more future generations are going to blame all of us for not heading off this problem more than we've been able to do. I guess I'm uncomfortable with the idea of blame, and that's why I'm talking around it so much. Sure, I've got my villains, but they seem irrelevant. I don't think it matters who I blame. It matters who's standing in the way, though, and they'll get moving here pretty soon. What are the solutions at the personal level, the local level, at the state level? Does it matter? We've got some things going for us, and you've mentioned a couple of them already, Jeff. When people's real estate values start to crash in coastal Virginia, that intensely valuable real estate, it's a place where everybody wants to live. That's going to wake people up much more than somebody like me waving the science in front of their noses. That's going to begin to make a real difference to people. When they begin to experience summers that are far more intensely hot, that's going to convince people that kind of reality much more than rhetoric. There are lots of groups to affiliate with right now. This is a Tuesday afternoon. In the next 20 minutes, you and I could be in touch with the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, with the Sierra Club, which is doing wonderful work. 350.org has chapters in Virginia. There are others who are working at the national level, but they have Virginia chapters. It's not difficult to find work to do immediately on this at all, and it does make a difference. You can't hope that it's all going to get better just because you're spending a few hours a week working on this, but at least you're helping push the conversation, the public conversation, in a better direction. And that's going to be the case for all of us, that role that we can play, no matter who the president is, or no matter who the governor is, or no matter whether Virginia is pretending or dealing with reality. Just being in that conversation on the right side of the ledger, that always matters. And it's all we can hope to do. When I see a picture of, for example, the March on Washington, you don't know any of those people's names, and nobody ever will. And in writing this book, I know that you knew that Steve Nash was never going to win the Nobel Prize for it, and that when the history of climate change action was written, you probably wouldn't be the first name mentioned. Why write it? You know, journalism is one of those trades that is so satisfying that you don't need much additional incentive to do it. It was really not just a privilege, but a lot of fun for me to talk to the scientists that I talked to. It's just a great good time. There are such intelligent and articulate people. And I ask them questions of the kind that you're asking me. How do you cope with this? How do you keep from getting depressed? It's an occupational hazard. The answers that they gave me gave me hope. They compartmentalize, they distract themselves, they keep doing the work they know how to do. That's the hope that they have. And it was just great getting to know so many of them. What's your next project? I have a new book coming out in 2017. The University of California Press is publishing a book that I've done on public lands management. That's the national forests and the national parks, the national grasslands, hundreds of millions of acres that we all own. All of it is ecologically crucial, especially because of climate change. It's going to really matter how we manage those for really the future of our whole national landscape. Pleased to have completed that book.
Just now, I'm working on somewhat smaller scale projects, but I'm especially looking for new good ways to connect with some climate change related activity in Virginia. So if you know of anything good, let me know. <laughs> well, when the history of Virginia climate change is written, certainly this name will be on the top of the list. The book is Virginia Climate Fever. Thank you so much for your time. I Thank really you. enjoyed it. Great fun.